Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, could I please speak with Naomi Klein? Speaking. Hello, Naomi. This is Paul Holdengraber calling you from the Quarantine Tapes. I'm so delighted that you could be a part of this. Thank you so much for taking the time. Tell me, Naomi, where do I find you and how have you been living these last 11 months, these last delirious 11 months of our quarantine? It is such a pleasure to to hear from you, Paul. Um, And that's a massive question. Um, Well, maybe, maybe just tell me. A little bit. Yeah, well, so, well, where I am physically is I am um, on unceded Coast Salish territory, um, the the lands of the Chatlitch Nation, also known as the Seashelt Nation, in British Columbia, Canada, or what is now called British Columbia. Um, and it's a part of the world that I really love. Um and am tremendously attached to, so I feel gratitude about being here. I, I, I was in uh, the beginning of the pandemic, I was in New Jersey, close to where I work at Rutgers University, um, very much kind of ground zero for the first wave. Um, and then in June, um, we decided to, to come to Canada because I wanted to be near my parents who are here and are in their 80s, or my mother, my mother's almost 80 in, in April. Um, and we thought we were just coming for the summer. Um, and, and it turned out that there wasn't really a reason for, to go back because I'm teaching over Zoom and um, everything is virtual now. So we stayed and we feel really lucky to be here. I, I knew, Naomi, that you would, you would answer the question, where are you, by by putting yourself deeply into place. And I think we both admire someone who's very wise, Wendell Berry, who said that our job is to love our place more than any other place. And how does that sentiment and that sentence resonate with you? You know, I I think about Wendell Berry a lot. Um, In a lot of ways, I feel... Auntie Wendelberry as a as a wandering Jew, <laughs> um, and you know this is a place that you know I know such a this is the place I feel most connected to. It's, you know my parents are here. I was married here. I had my son here, um, but it's a relatively new relationship of of you know a quarter century. Um, and yeah, I, I, one of the quotes I love of Wendelberry's is uh, when I. I met him and interviewed him for This Changes Everything. Um, in, I was in Kansas at the Land Institute, um, which is a place he's very connected to, run by Wes Jackson. And, and I sat down with, with, with both of them. And Wendell, um, I asked him, you know, what do you have to say to wanderers like me who don't really have a place <laughs> or don't really know where we belong? Yeah. And he said, stop somewhere <laughs> and begin the thousand year long process of knowing that place, um, which I just, I think about all the time. Um, and you know, I, I, I think, I think of, of also Terry Tempest Williams, who I had the great, great pleasure of interviewing also on the quarantine tapes. And she, in, in, a, in a recent book called Erosion, says the plain fact is that the planet does not need more successful people, David Orr writes, but it does desperately need more peacemakers, healers, restorers, storytellers, and lovers of every kind. It needs people who live well 
in their places. It needs people of moral courage, willing to join the fight to make the world habitable and humane. And these qualities have little to do with success as we have defined it. What are the qualities most needed in this epoch, do you think, of the Anthropocene? Well, um, maybe being welcoming <laughs> is one of them. Maybe being welcoming is one of them. Um, being Having a sense of hospitality, being a good guest, and also knowing how to welcome guests. Because I think when we talk, I mean, I... I love Terry Tempest Williams' writing and and um, and her as a human and and Wendell. You know, when I describe myself as a wandering Jew, I mean, I you know, I come from a people that have been multiply m multiple times displaced, as so many people on the planet are, and I'm a settler on these lands. Um, and and so and and we are in a time of mass displacement, right? So, you know, what is called some, you know, sometimes called the Anthropocene, which I always, I, I always bridle against a little bit because, you know, it, it means the age of man, the age of humans. And there's a sort of flat, a flattening in, in that, in that terminology that sort of ascribes the marks we've left on this planet to humanness <laughs> as opposed to a certain way of being human that is not the way that most people have been humans throughout history and are in fact it's not the way most people are humans even now it's a particular kind of dominance-based extractive-based capitalist way of being that sees the earth as a machine um, that has left its mark in such a, a damaging way and that is now called the Anthropocene but I, I search for other words. I don't feel like we've landed. Have on you the found one? <laughs> Have you found one? Um, but yeah, I, 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 I. But but this is an era of movement of people. Um, within countries, between countries. So we have to somehow have respect for place. Have re have have respect for the people who have a history of caretaking particular places. But we also need to. I don't develop practices that that transcend place as well, right? That is about how we're going to live wherever we happen to be, um, because migration is a fact of life, um, and it, and 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 that's only going to that's always been true, and it's only going to accelerate. About five or six years ago, you said something that I find very intriguing, and that perhaps has become as many of the things you've said in the past truer now. You said. It just comes down to this core question. Is hyper-competition going to rule our world or is cooperation going to rule our world? I wonder if you can further unpack that statement. Is, is cooperation, is that, is, that, is that it? Yeah. Um, well, funny, I don't remember saying that, but I think I agree with myself. Oh, good. Well, sometimes um, one doesn't. <laughs> um, yeah, and I mean, for me, I think it's a little bit tied up in the end of the Trump era. One hopes it's the end. Um, because, you know, I always thought that the way we should see Trump as a kind of living dystopian fiction, and I think that's something else we've talked about <laughs> Um, over the years, where, you know, in, this, in the way that dystopian fiction holds up a mirror at society and says, this is where you're, this is where you're headed, right? Um, I think in, in lots of ways, that is, that, that, that is Trump, that is like this exaggeration, this exaggerated version of, of the dominant trends in our culture, and including hyper-competition as, as, um, you know, personified in, in, in reality television and a show that is all about firing people and dominating people and, and picking winners and losers. And, and, um, and so, yeah, that is the world we live in. I mean, that's the road we are, we are on. And it's a road that breeds, a, 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 a breeds scarcity, a sense of scarcity and precarity. It multiplies those 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 realities. It's not just a feeling; it's a reality of scarcity and precarity. 
um, that that only intensifies with time and, and capitalism finds ever more creative ways to multiply precarity and deepen precarity and 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 spread those feelings of scarcity and a sense of well if you get yours then I'm losing and right. that sort of zero sum logic which right. connects intimately to how we're going to deal with the reality of migration right I mean a figure like Trump is so good at um, at, 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 at playing on those feelings of scarcity and turning people against the most vulnerable instead of looking up at the top at who is creating these systems. Um, yeah, but the cooperation is, is, is our only hope of, of surviving the shocks that, that we've already locked into the system, right? We are living in an era of, not in a, it's not the future that we're talking about now. We're in the era of mega shocks, COVID is one, wildfires, droughts, superstorms, market crashes. I mean, this is all we've been living um, uh, in in recent decades, and 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 it's become the shocks are coming faster with and with shorter breaks between them. So I think when I when I think about the importance of a cooperative or a collectivist spirit in in that. It's really about shock absorb, like social shock absorbers, um, where when these when these shocks hit. I mean, don't get me wrong. I also think we should try to do the things that are necessary to keep the shocks from coming, but they will come because we've screwed things up enough that they're One coming. One way or another. And and when they come, you see very clearly the the complexity of what it is to be human because you see that scarcity logic of I will hide, I will get, I will take all the toilet paper in the world. <laughs> you know, I will look after mine. I will, I will, I will create my parent pod. I will just sort of try sever myself from, from the social. And you also see these incredible expressions of solidarity and mutual aid and generosity and love, love for people we don't know. We see it all during moments of shock. Right. Um, and so the way I think of that, but it is, um, the role of policy, the role of government, like why politics matters, is that the the systems we choose to live under light up different parts of our complex selves. So we live under late capitalism, which lights up the hyper-competitive parts of ourselves. And the reason we need to live in a different kind of social system or social democracy or eco-socialism or Feminist eco-socialism, <laughs> or once again, we need a better phrase. But yeah, um, we, need, we need new words, new term terminology. Yeah, yeah, because none of them are adequate. But but what they all mean to me is um, inducing that sense of scarcity. So putting in a kind of a, putting in a floor, you know, everyone's going to have enough to eat. Everyone's going to have health care. Everybody is going to have... Um, you know, everybody's gonna gonna have the basics taken care of: housing, food, healthcare, um, uh, and and water, and and all the things that are you know enshrined in the UN Declaration um, for Human Rights. And 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 when we have those basics taken care of, we find more abundance. You know, uh, and and, I, and that's partly something I know I, a little bit from kind of traveling across the the border a fair bit and, and I don't idealize Canada in any in any way but you know the biggest difference between our countries is we have more of a social safety net than you do right and I remember like the, the feeling I had when I crossed the border in June was just like I could feel it in my body and it it, it wasn't it's not to say that COVID isn't terrible here and it's not you know we're failing people in long-term care we're, we have we have plenty of problems we have vaccine apartheid we're hoarding vaccines from the global south there's incredible health inequities uh, in Canada particularly with First Nations people um, but there is more of a social safety net and universal health care, the fact of it, in a pandemic, I could feel it in my body <laughs> as soon as I crossed the border. I was so braced against the failed healthcare system in the United States. You know, you, you, you've said, and, and this fits so beautifully, I find, you know, beyond the statement that I read to you before from, from your interview in, in Rolling Stone in, in 2014, you've said this nothing essential about humans living under capitalism. And I love this. Capitalism is a tiny blip 
in the collective story of our species. So in a, in a way, you've, you've started to answer this question, Naomi, but what might it mean to envision a future beyond capitalism, which is something that I have found so beautifully expressed when, when Ursula Le Guin said, we live in capitalism, its power seems inescapable, but mm -hmm. then so did the divine right of kings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that quote. Um, and she was talking about the importance of recognizing um, the work of artists who imagine different futures. She, she says further on, any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and chain, change often begin in art, very often in our art, the art yeah. of words. Therefore, as you have said so, so beautifully all along now, we need better terminology. And we need better visions of the future. Um, or at least more of them in different ones. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so struck, and I'm sure you've noticed this too, in the way people talk about um, the pandemic, you know, how quickly we go to Hollywood dystopian narratives, right? You know, how often people invoke, um, you know, zombie movies or, um, uh, you know, um, The Walking Dead. I, I don't know, you hear it all the time. And And, and, and so many of our cultural reference points for the future are versions of ourselves only worse, right? Which is sort of what I was saying Trump is. He's, right. he's that dystopian, dystopian fiction come to life, um, almost hackneyed dystopian fiction. Like if you handed it into your editor, your editor would tell you, you know, go try again. You know, this is a little too on, on the nose, a little too obvious, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think that And it's one of the things I love about Ursula, Ursula's worlds is it, and, and, um, and because she, she defies that and she challenged, challenged us to imagine worlds where we were not perfect, but, but, but maybe, maybe we tried different things, uh, different ways of being human and that sense of expansiveness. And I think, you know, where we are right now in the, in the sweep of capitalist history, no one can know for sure because things can always get worse. And even that phrase that I used earlier, late capitalism, I kind of use it, but, but um, because it's, it's sort of, ho it's hopeful. Right. <laughs> like, I hope it's, I hope we're late in this story um, because things can always <laughs> get worse. Um, but there's nothing foretold about that. Um, I think that, that, that there are cracks in, in, in the story that, and, and that the, the era that I grew up in, in the eighties and nineties, you know, as a kid in the eighties and, And before I was even politically aware or conscious, I, I was living in the world that Reagan and Thatcher were creating, which was itself a war, I think, on the imagination, um, first and foremost. So it, that, yes, neoliberalism was the policies of privatization and marketization and financialization and deregulation and, and austerity and all the, all the hallmarks that we understand of, of that era. But it was also Thatcher saying there is no alternative. And it was also Francis Fukuyama declaring history over. And it was these, um, these borders placed around our imagination that just said here and no further. You can critique it, but don't you dare say there's anything but it. And imagine, you know, the, the, I, I mean, I still can't imagine the arrogance of declaring history over. That there's, this is, this is that we have reached the end point of human evolution. There will be no more tries about how we can live. Um, and so I think that the, the impact of that policing of the imaginary was really powerful for my generation. And I see such a profound shift with young people in their 20s now who never got the neoliberal hard sell. Like they may have gotten the policies and they may have gotten worse experiences of neoliberalism you know, with the gig economy and just the financialization of the self and on, on social media. Um, you know, it's capitalism on steroids. They didn't get the ideological hard sell that we did um, because I think ever since the 2008 financial crisis, Neoliberalism has been a bit of a zombie ideology. Like it, it hasn't. It hasn't. It has been, um, you know, uh, uh, it's just walking around at, without a sort of an animating life force. Um, and that animating life force is its belief in itself. Is is its willingness to sit down and have an argument and say, 
this is good. Like if we, if, if we cut every social services, we'll have a better world. Like this is what I grew up with, right? People honestly saying like, this is going to, it's all going to work out really, really well when we deregulate the financial markets. Um, rising tides will you know, lift all boats and all of that. Um, I, I, I can't even remember the last time I heard somebody make an earnest neoliberal argument. <laughs> it, it's just, there is no alternative. That's you know? what you were sold. I think so. And I, and, and so I think that there's more space for, for there's, there's so much more ability to imagine different futures now. And you, and I think we're seeing that in our, and you say that you, you want to imagine a future that is not terrible. And you, you speak about rekindling some, and I love this rekindling some utopian imagination. Yeah. Um, and it's funny. I mean, like, not terrible is hardly is hardly utopia, <laughs> right? Um, and and I think to some, and this is why I was talking earlier about the that the shocks we are going to face a future with with loss. You know, we are we are in an era of mass extinction. We are in a in an era of a destabilized climate. Um, you know, we are in an era of of, of, of pandemics, and so. We, we are, what we need to figure out is how we're going to weather these shocks. This is not, this is not utopia, but it can be a hell of a lot better than than what we have now. And um, we've tried to do these with these little films that we've been doing, uh, um, little short 10 minute films, a message from the future with Molly Crabapple's beautiful art. Yeah. and it's, it's amazing to watch those films travel in the world. The first one we did was with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, A Message yes. from the Future. And, it, you know, the, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has a sort of Susan Sontag-y white stripe in her hair. And she's telling the story of how we want a, a Green New Deal. Um, and, and frankly, Paul, Paul, I've never been involved in a project that has struck such a chord with people. You know, that film was viewed 12 million times. No, I know. And everybody yeah. should see these, really. But the hunger for it, it just, it just speaks to the fact that, we're, that we're, we need these visions for the future. We're not getting enough of them. Um, and, I, and I think people get this now. And I see a lot more people uh, uh, um, liberating, liberating their respective imaginations and, and doing this work. And I, and I also just see it um, a lot easier for, for young, younger people. Um, you know, when we wrote the Leap Manifesto, which was this um, kind of a proto-Green New Deal, and a process that I was involved in after I wrote this changes everything. And we convened a, a meeting of movement leaders and, and, and we wrote this people's platform and, and it came out of this process um, that was really well facilitated by a wonderful uh, futurist, uh, um, Adrian Marie Brown. And, and, and she led us through this process where we went into small groups and, and we had to envision the future we wanted. Well, what's it, what does it look like when we win? And we realized that we had no practice in this. You know, this is just five years ago. Um, and this was, these were groups of people who had worked together, you know, fighting wars and fighting free trade agreements and fighting right-wing governments, but not coming together and say, what does the world look like after we win? How do we want to, what's our vision? What is our alternative? And it was like, for the first while, we were just like looking at each other, <laughs> um, just kind of unable to, to, to find any kind of words or language. And, and it was just like a real process of doulaing or midwifing this on, on the part of our great facilitators that we, that we got a vision out of that process. But now I've worked with, with young, young climate justice activists and, and asked, okay, you know, write me, write me a letter from, from 2030. And they're like, bang, it's done. Here's the, here's the future. And, and I just see what a shift. This is what it means for an, for an ideology to loosen its grip. Right. Over our imagination. No, I, I you, remember you say we need to earn our hope with action. Yeah, yeah. I've always had a, an ambivalent feeling about this sort of the idea of hope as just a kind of a state thing that you just are in all the time. Um, you know, I don't, I don't feel hopeful all the time. And, and, and I, I don't know that hope is what, is, is what drives me. I think love drives me, <laughs> love for place. Um, love for people, love for love, love for all that is on the line. As as you know, Nina Turner, um, who I worked with in the Sanders campaign, she would always say, "All that we love is on the line," and that really really resonates with me. Um, 
So, you know, I try to, I try to, I try to do my work from, from that place. And also I, there's a little bit of, I, I, I write, I, I write from rage sometimes. Um, you know, when I wrote the shock doctrine, I think I wrote it with a clenched fist. I was enraged, <laughs> um, uh, at what had been done to, to left movements throughout the world, the violence inflicted incredible leaders, um, and, and people's movements. And, and I do have hope, but I think that we, that it's something that we have to earn. Right. Um, and, and then we have to, to enlarge the space for hope with our actions. You know, I we, we had the occasion on, on the quarantine tapes also to speak with Molly Crabapple, and she was absolutely wonderful. And we've been talking now about finding better better terms. And, and one of the terms you have come up with, which I, I think is so important, and I'd love you to expand a little bit uh, 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 on it. You, you, you've coined the term climate barbarism. Can you can you give a sense of of what you're referring to, and how might we make a shift, as it were, from climate barbarism to the possibility of, I suppose, what one might call climate justice, if that is possible still? Yeah, yeah. So climate barbarism. Um, you now I use that phrase, not fire, and and um, we often talk about there being a a, a denial of climate change on the right. Um, and, and, and I think that climate change is, that climate change denial is really lessening on the right. It, it, even with Trump, you know, he would occasionally tweet that it was a hoax. Um, but really his heart wasn't, wasn't really in it. Um, and he knows climate change is happening because Mar-a-Lago's, you know, toast, um, in a few years and, and, um, you know, it's very vulnerable and he's had to, you know, build build uh, various seawalls for his golf courses. He knows this is happening um, as somebody who owns a lot of uh, uh, waterfront. I think what he, what he believes is that he's going to be fine. What he, belie- what, he, what he believes that his wealth will protect him. Um, and you know, this is one of the things that I think is quite disturbing about the COVID era is that we are seeing uh, apartheid in lots of ways. Trump getting COVID and getting incredible healthcare and overcoming it became this kind of a parable for him and a lot of his followers that was sort of like, well, if, if you, if you die from this, it's because you're weak, right? And we're, we're strong and we're, and, 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 and our ability to survive it is a, a measure of our superiority. So it feeds into a logic of white supremacy this is something that I've seen as, you know, I've been covering the climate change denial movement for a long time. I've gone to these uh, conferences that are hosted and, and, and it's very clear, all I can say, Paul, it's been very clear for a long time that it's really not about the denial of the science. The, the denial of the science is a cover for we refuse to do the things that are necessary in the face of the science because that would require investing in the public sphere, regulating corporations, doing all the things that we've devoted our lives to undoing. Um, and we believe we'll be okay. We believe we'll be okay. Um, I was at a, a Heartland Institute um, conference, which is sort of ground zero for climate change denial. Um, I think it was 2011, so a decade ago. And they were joking from the podium about thousands of people in France having died from a heat wave. And they said, there was one speaker who said, and then they discovered the air conditioning. <laughs> and it was extraordinary. Oh, um, and so we are living in an era of climate barbarism, I guess is, is, is what I'm, I, I'm kind of trying to rebrand climate denial, climate barbarism. I believe they know it's happening. I believe they think that they will be fine. I believe that the fortressing of borders, not just in the United States, but in the whole Anglosphere, and in the European Union, the offshoring um, of, 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 of migrant detention that is happening now in Mexico, that has been happening for a long time in Pacific Islands like Manus and Nauru um, uh, by the Australian government, um, what the European Union has been doing, co- co- cooperating with Libya to, to, to round up migrants at sea and prevent them from ever reaching their shores. This is a response to climate change, in part to climate change, or this is a posture with which we're entering the climate, the climate disruption era. Because, I, and I say that to clarify that, that 
these migrants are not only moving because of climate change. It's, it's an intersection of, of various forces, first and foremost, militarism um, and poverty, and also climate is an accelerant for all of those forces. So um, it's intensifying military conflicts, it's intensifying poverty, so you can't pry it apart. But what we know is more and more people are moving and are going to move. And the fortressing of borders and the sort of let them drown posture is, um, is the way the wealthy world is responding. And, and, and we're seeing the same thing in the way we, we, we are hoarding vaccines. Um, so, yeah, this isn't a very cheery conversation. I mean, that's the, climate barbarism is what we're doing. Um, and, and it's informed the logic of how we have failed to act all these years you know, and you, you go to UN climate summits and there are these, um, you know, just these gloves off negotiations over something that, that seems a little bit arcane. Like, are we working towards keeping temperatures from warming um, by two degrees Celsius or 1.5 degrees Celsius? And you'll have like the delegation of the Pacific Island nations and African nations coming together and chanting in the hallways of some you know, utterly generic conference center, 1.5 to survive, which means it has to be 1.5 if our nations are not going to either fry or disappear beneath the waves. And then you have these European and Canadian and American and, and Australian negotiators saying, no, that's too hard. We need to do two. And plus, we're not willing to even bring the commitments to actually do two degrees. And it's it just all feels like uh, it's, it's the strangest thing because it's so kind of bureaucratic and bloodless and yet the most human thing you could ever witness and the, the most violent that I've ever witnessed. And I've covered wars and seen a lot of violence. Naomi, before we get to something perhaps slightly more cheerful. Maybe we reorder, we should reorder it, Paul. <laughs> no, <laughs> no I, I, I don't think so. I think no. we're, sp no, Naomi, we're speaking to this moment. And I, I, I think I'll, I'll take us a bit, a, a bit, uh, even a bit to something even perhaps a little more depressing. Recently, you, you wrote about the Screen New Deal. And in that quote, in that context, you quoted something that truly, really, frightened me. Um, this woman, Anuja Sonalker, CEO of Steer Tech, a Maryland-based company selling self-parking technology, recently summed up the new virus personalized pitch. And she said, there has been a distinct warming up to humanless, contactless technology, she said. Humans are biohazards. Machines are not. And it reminded me of something that Elon Musk predicted, that because of technologies like Neuralink, he said human language will be obsolete in, a, in, in as little as five years, but we could still do it for sentimental reasons. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just curious what, what, what you hear in these comments and, you know, we will shift our conversation after that, I promise you. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so the Screen New Deal um, was just a phrase I, I came up with to describe the way in which tech companies are frantically rebranding re themselves um, in, in this moment as touchless, you know, they just a few, a year ago, they were marketing their products as frictionless, um, you know, basically just convenient. Um, and, and, and in the case of driverless cars, right, you just referenced that um, there were concerns, right? There were concerns about pedestrians um, being mowed down. There was, you know, people, people didn't trust them and, and, and they were um, meeting quite a bit of resistance and tech companies in general ha have, we're facing quite a strong backlash, including Amazon, which had had its plans to build a, a headquarters in, in New York blocked. It was not a great time to be a tech company a year ago. Um, and in very short order um, during the pandemic, we saw uh, this uh, um, attempt to, to step into the space 
um, the kind of vacuum and, and say like, you know, we are, we are the saviors. We're the ones keeping you alive. Um, stop beating up on Amazon. Um, you know, we're, we're the, we're the reasons you, you have home delivery and, um, and then yes, rebranding technologies as, as, as touchless and therefore, uh, COVID safe. Um, you know, and, and I think you've, I know you know Astra Taylor. I don't know if you've done a quarantine tape with her, but um, I know you've done other other things with Astra. In matters of moments, she's she's the best. And um, you know, Astra has a wonderful uh, wrote a great piece, I think, for the Baffler. Maybe it was for Logic uh, a, a couple of years ago on what she called fo- photomation, like fake automation. Um, because there's no such thing as a touchless technology. All, all there, there are better and worse ways to hide the labor that is actually um, happening. So you can have a, a driverless car deliver a package to you, but there's still going to be hands in a warehouse packing that box. It's just you won't see them, so it'll seem to be touchless. Um, but yeah, so I think that there's there, there are various ways that uh, um, trends that predate COVID uh, are, have been accelerated by it. Um, my hope, if there is any hope, is that a lot of it has been, um, you know, a lot of it we recognize to be inhuman right, and painful and miserable, right? So if you take something like Zoom classrooms or, you know, particularly um, for, for, for kids, um, you know, for, 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 for K through 12, right? Um, kids are hating this, right? And I'm, which, and this is not to say that it's a, a a bad idea. I think that there are certainly situations where where schools can't safely open, and we can have conversations about why that has happened and if that was if that if that was inevitable. Um, you know, fr- from the perspective of a, of a company like Google, which has been pushing its Google Classroom platforms um, for a while, this has all been a wonderful opportunity. And I quote Eric Schmidt, former former uh, CEO of, of Google, about what people are discovering about the wonders of remote, of remote uh, um, learning during, during COVID. But that's not actually what's been happening. What we've, what we've discovered is the horrors of it. So I think that a lot of these technologies that um, were being rolled out, not slowly, actually quite quickly before COVID, but not as quickly as has happened under COVID. I mean, this has been a crash, a crash course in virtual life, right? Right. And frankly, I think if they had continued on their pre-COVID trajectory, we probably would have ended up pretty close to this kind of, we, we were going in the direction of more and more atomization, more and more life you know, spent on social media, less in-person friendships, more virtual friendships, um, you know, less time connected to specific places, more time in this kind of virtual space. Um, you know, more virtual our universities were already pushing towards more online learning. Um, you know, there were more and more screens in the classrooms um, for, for in K through 12. And healthcare was, you know, also going more, more telehealth, more remote. And it would have just, I think, rolled out fairly seamlessly without much resistance if it had been a little bit more gradual, like say if it had rolled out over a decade. But because we got this crash in a period of like three months, all of a sudden we're, li- we're living these Zoom lives, I think we're much more in touch, you know, to use a very you know, overused metaphor of like the frog in boiling water, right? Um, maybe, maybe we would have just slowly boiled in this virtual touchless world if COVID hadn't happened. But now we're kind of all jumping around going, what is this? <laughs> now we know what we're missing. Now we know what we're missing. And in, in a sense also, and you say that somewhere, um, these technologies in the end, and I know it from my own children, these technologies in the end make us sad yeah and i mean i don't want to um i don't want to throw it all away right i mean i think i'm thrilled that i get to talk with you right me now, too um thanks to these various gadgets that are enabling right. it um and and i i'm i'm happy that i that i'm getting to continue to teach you know my wonderful rutgers students throughout this period and i know that it's been really important for them to have you know a circle of of peers um 
to be in conversation with during this time as well. But and, something is lost. You know, I've been to powerful Zoom memorials and rituals. Right. And, you know, I have friends who've lost, you know, very, like, mem- very close members of their families. And we've created mourning circles. And we've done amazing things with these technologies. Um, I think that we, so I, so I don't think it's, I, I think what makes us sad is when all of life is lived. That's right. And you know, I uh, Naomi, I don't know if you know the psychoanalyst who I so much love, Adam Phillips, he said something that might resonate with you. He says, you can't tickle yourself. You're the second person who's mentioned him to me in two days, so I think that's a sign. I think I think it is a sign. The universe <laughs> is telling you, read Adam Phillips. He wrote a book yeah. which I love called On Kissing, Tickling, and Being Bored. Yeah. And it's tricky because I don't know if you've found this, but like in some, because I'm using these technologies for work now, I find I'm losing touch with friends who I used to talk with, like long distance friends who I used to, um, you know, talk to on the phone in the evenings. And and now I have no appetite for more technology at the end of a work day. and 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 I just so need my 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 breaks from it. Um, so it's a strange it's a strange balance. But but I think yeah. I mean the other thing I would say is that we're we are discovering that these these technologies are basic infrastructure. And so there there are a couple. There's the fact of the screen, and then there's the fact of who owns the screen, who owns the platform, what are the incentives built into it. And what are they, what parts of us are they lighting up, right? To come back to what we were talking about earlier, um, you know, from a climate perspective, it makes sense for us to travel a whole lot less and for us to um, to, to meet digitally w- whenever we can. Um, but given that we need to be doing more and more of this, and this has become more and more essential, um, there's a there's a, a a backdoor privatization that is happening in many ways, right? So it's not just that schools have moved online. Schools have moved to private for-profit companies, like public schools have moved to private for-profit companies online. And it's not just that we're hanging out with our friends. We're hanging out with our friends on platforms that are built on extracting our data and encouraging a certain kind of engagement, which is not very healthy for the types of conversations we're having with our friends online. Um, so given if, that we are going to live a good portion of our lives online, we need to manage it as a commons. We yeah, need to manage it right. um, in a much more careful way. You know, I think of Ivan Illich, we, need, we still need tools for conviviality. And nearly in closing, very sadly, Naomi, um, you know, Arundhati Roy has, has said, I think very poignantly, and she's described this pandemic as a portal. And I'm wondering now, you know, she wrote this six months ago, mm-hmm. or, or maybe more. Now at this moment, how does that word portal resonate with you? Um, it's the big question and it's the big challenge of, of what what is it that we're going to bring with us as we see the light. I think we see the light on the other end now. Um, and, and that challenge that she laid out early, like, what are we going to bring with us? Right. Because where, where we're, where we're going to go is going to be different. We are going to emerge changed. Um, but that change could be for the worse, (laughs) or we could decide to travel light. You know, I think a lot about it in terms of, um, yeah, like what, what do we, what, what have we learned that we, about ourselves and about our lives and what about what has gotten us through this period should inform how we travel to whatever comes next. Um, like, what can we, what can we shed? What did we discover wasn't all that important? Um, and how do we resist? I mean, you know, e- economists talk about the rebound effect that often happens when there is a period where like some, if you introduce a, a technology that saves energy, often people will, 
um, use more energy because they know that there's a saving. Um, and I think there is a real danger of a kind of a post-COVID rebound where we just all go a little bit uh, bonkers with everything that we can do and every, everywhere that we can fly and all the things that we can buy and all, the, <laughs> all that, where we, we just do tremendous damage. We, the privileged over-consumers of the world who are responsible for, for, for the vast majority of emissions. And so I just think we have to stay in touch with what we've, what we have valued most, what has gotten us through this most. And it's not, it's not, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, I, I don't miss shopping. I don't, I miss my, I miss my friends, you know, I miss time with my friends, just like real time, unstructured time. Right. The and the tactile I've feeling. taken so much solace from the natural world in this period. And I know that's a privilege, but I have, and I want to, I want to, I want to pay it forward. I want to, I want to do more to protect um, that space. Yeah. You know, in closing, uh, Naomi, I, I want to, I want our listeners to know um, the Naomi Klein, who is just a, a, a joyful um semiologist in, 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 nearly as if she was the sister of Roland Barthes you, you beautifully analyzed um, and I'm sure you know what I'm getting to you beautifully analyzed the meaning of Bernie Sanders mittens and I'm going to read a little passage and then maybe have you comment very quickly on it It just, it just made me smile so much, and I really loved it. it. It's a piece you wrote for The Intercept where you, you speak about the possible meanings of Bernie Sanders' mittens at the inauguration. And one of them, you give five possible semiological readings of those mittens. You say, at an event that was above all a show of cross-partisan unity, Bernie, Bernie's mittens stood in for everyone who has never been included in that elite manufactured consensus. It wasn't a boycott of the occasion itself. Nobody wanted Trump out more than Bernie, but it expressed an unequivocal reservation of judgment about what was coming. Those crossed arms were the mittens saying, let's see what you actually do, and then we can talk about unity. And then a bit later you say, Bernie's crossed arms and sartorial dissonance seem to be saying, do not cross, cross us. If after all the hoopla, the Biden-Harris administration doesn't deliver transformational action for a nation and a planet in agony, there will be consequences. And unlike during the Obama years, those consequences won't take years because the revolutionary spirit is already on the inside and it's wearing mittens. I love that. The mittens as boxing gloves. <laughs> the, uh, which oh. brings us back to the rage with which you started your writing career. <laughs> yeah, but also it's funny, like, When I first, before I started writing books, I wrote a newspaper column um, and, and, uh, and I, I would write a lot. I would write like every, every like four columns, I would just let myself write a funny column. <laughs> and I kind of missed that. And I, and I felt like I was getting back to that a bit with the mittens column. <laughs> I, I feel like I've had to be so serious during these, during these, the Trump years. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's, I was trying to get at something with that piece, which is there's a feeling for a lot of us who are part of social movements. When we look at Biden, that's a little bit like that 90s show. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, it's not, it's kind of like Trump was the 1980s redux and Biden's the 1990s. And it doesn't feel that new, right? Um But what I what I feel really strongly is while while he may be a very familiar kind of neoliberal figure, we and by we I mean the broad uh, movement of people that has been organizing and protesting and resisting and imagining different worlds and that 
has ushered in the era of the squad and enlarged it and, um, and, and so broadened the spectrum of debate during the Democratic Party primaries um, uh, that put the Green New Deal on the platform and defund the police on the platform, um, you know, and so much more. That they may be the same, you know, those of them at the inauguration on the platform, but we, the movements on the outside, are different. We are not who we were when Obama came to power. Um, so many of the, the powerful movements that produced this moment didn't exist during the, Obama's first term, uh, only really emerged in his second term. The, the movements fighting the pipelines and, and Black Lives Matter and the Dreamers and um, and 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 this sort of a a really powerful resurgent Indigenous rights movement. I mean, these were all like movements never disappear, um, but but there, but it, that there you know there is a revolutionary river that ebbs and flows, and it's really flowing now, and so so Biden may be the same the same, but we are different. And we make him different. So Obama's all sorry, Biden. We make we make Biden different. He is not the Biden of the Obama years. He is something different um, because he's a career politician and he 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 knows where the power and the energy is. And you know, when I I was reminded recently that Richard Nixon introduced some of the best environmental legislation um, in in American history. And he, you know, didn't do it because he was an environmentalist. He did it because he was under pressure, um, and he did it for his own political survival. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I was trying to get at with the mittens. <laughs> there lies the hope. I think so. I think so. I think there's some hope in there, some earned hope, hope that we've been working really hard to to earn. And and uh, yeah, I see it there. No, me. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I really want Likewise, to. Likewise, Paul. I really thank want you to thank so you. I Thanks want, for keeping me company during quarantine. I, I love and, and thank these you, conversations. Thank you. And, and, and I, hope, I hope when the quarantine ends and we're all vaccinated and safe, we can go back to what we miss most, which is actually to be in the company of the other, to have some form of tactile inebriation in the presence of other people. I... I hope so too. And what one of my my personal resolution is I just want to move a little slower. Um, I want to travel slower, you know. Um, and one of the things I've appreciated during quarantine is actually just having some time to remember, re-remember and relive experiences that went by too fast because I was moving too quickly. <laughs> um and so I want to. I want some slow travel in the future and some slow conversations. We're back to Wendell Berry. Exactly. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Naomi. Take good care. You take care. Bye bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support. 